Well, welcome to another segment of the Grassy Knoll. This is February 7th, 2007. I got that right. And we have with us today, of course, Alan Watt. And I try to put Alan... Uh, actually, uh, Alan was first, and I flanked him uh, with the uh, informer after I got done uh, with uh, doing a pre-record with him. And so these three days, of which Alan presents the middle, is pretty much dedicated to, um, especially for us in the United States, what um, an illusion it's all been. And so uh, joining us from uh, Canada, where it's like, what, a zillion degrees below zero? Uh, not quite, yes. <laughs> a zillion and one, I think. <laughs> Uh, I, I've just been watching what's going on, obviously, in Wisconsin and, and such, and, and talking to some people up there. Minus 23. Yeah. Uh, that'll ruin your day. Uh, uh, yeah, you can do it. <laughs> yeah, you got to steal yourself for it. All right, now, um, just to touch upon this, because I didn't realize this was going on, but uh, what in the world uh, is happening uh, with the website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com? Oh, I just, just uh, run around with uh, Yahoo on the Saturday morning. I, I got emails saying that the site was down. And sure enough, the .NET site was down. I couldn't get the com up unless you punched in the whole HTTP and www. Uh, then it would come up. Got in touch with Yahoo eventually, and uh, I got a run around. So a guy told me right there and then, oh, it's working fine here, he says. I said, no, it's not. <laughs> and uh, miraculously, the com started working properly, but the net stayed down until yesterday afternoon. And, and it was just basically a runaround that um, uh, talked to six or seven different people, passed around, uh, back to the talking machines, back to email yeah. all the account information back to them, only to find out their accountant department to take anything extra. But, I mean, nothing was overdrawn or anything. There's nothing to do with that at all. But to go through the whole formula and procedure again only find out that you couldn't even uh, check your confirmation because they, their site read, read down. Their uh -huh. site, yeah. So uh, it was a complete... Uh, I think it was a message, really. Yeah. Well, don't give them that much credit. <laughs> yeah. For honking things up without meaning to. Uh, but, I mean, are you having any problems with, uh, with uh, getting hit with viruses and such? Well, bombarded. Uh, it's for the last five or six days. Uh, it's just been stacks of them coming in. It's ever since my last talk. Uh, with whom? What did you say? I just sort of drug, uh, dragged up the old stuff on the, the Iran Contra and how the CIA were bringing in the drugs by the, the, the plane load and the, and the boat load to sell on the streets of the U.S. And I went into the details. And there's a report by the guy who came out initially. He was a, a Green Beret who changed this, the Coast Guard. And uh, he came out and tried to get his story published in the major papers. And initially, they wouldn't touch it. So I read it from a Cincinnati newspaper. And uh, somebody didn't like that getting rehashed, I guess. And was this, uh, you said this was a, uh, a, a Coast Guard veteran? Uh, yeah, he initially was in the Green Beret for okay. years. And then got transferred to the Coast Guard. Well, just as a sidebar, along those lines... I don't think I've ever told you the story, but they've heard out there <clears throat> about a pilot friend of mine in, in commercial airlines being told by two people he flew with at different times. Uh, both of them had the same story, that they bridged the uh, the gap between their military careers, their fighter jet careers, and also and the commercial airlines by flying in dope uh, to fund Iran-Contra Gate. Mm -hmm. And they both told him that. And the one said he went down to drink uh, in the, uh, I guess, in the early uh, dusk hours. And the, 
any Coast Guard wouldn't come look for him because they knew who, what he was, but they didn't know who he was working for. In the morning, they were surprised to find him still floating, and they had to take him in, and there was nothing they could do because, obviously, you know, he was working for the government. Yeah. And so what you're saying is, is absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a joke. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have people on the inside who are, who are verified, they're bona fide, and, and they've come out with their stories. Where they were, they were, you know, the Coast Guard, for instance, has codes. And they're always in touch with uh, um, their main base in the U.S. So when they're going to intercept a ship, they, they radio the information to them. And if a certain code comes back, they're ordered to let it through. It's, it's as simple as that. Uh-huh. No questions asked. The crew won't ask questions. The captain won't ask questions. And that's how this stuff comes in. Well, drugs makes the world go round. It certainly does. But this system has always dealt with mm-hmm. money and drugs. Mm-hmm. They all go together. Uh, the prostitution, the legal system above, the illegal system below, both sides above and below. It's all the one system going back to uh, ancient times. Um, yeah, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, what we're looking at perhaps with the United States over a number of centuries, it's the same old scam. But just one item uh, if you, uh, I'd like to bring up, and I, everybody's probably pretty much aware of this, but have you heard about this um, Texas governor um, that has... Uh, given a mandate to uh, vaccinate all uh, females? Yes. Um, I got an email from a female <laughs> that said, uh, um, you know, this is wrong. It only addresses one half of the problem because obviously males are involved in this. If, in fact, it's uh, intercourse that leads to uh, the greatest incidence of, the, of this virus. But, um, and while that's definitely true, the thing is, what I wrote back is that you, but the biggest tragedy is that, at least for now, females have lost more of uh, what we could call the right to be, uh, not have their privacy invaded. Uh-huh. I mean, who in the world told any government that what one's body is, is fair game for the powers that be? The, the people did. Over, over the last 50, 60 years, the people have, have, have accepted that. Gradually, well, bit by bit, they've come to accept it. Uh, started off with uh, the abortion issue. Because as soon as you demean life, human life, in any way at all, yeah. that's the beginning. It's, it's knocking down the pillars of the pantheon one by one, and eventually the roof caves in, and there's nothing to hold up anymore. There's no moral justification left. Uh-huh. You cannot compromise on moral justification. Well, uh, interesting you should say about the uh, devaluation of human life. i got something I just want to bring up to you as well. <clears throat> but this, uh, the, you know, And the other thing is, of all the canards... Uh, all the snake oil salesmen in medicine for centuries. Yep. There's nothing, there's no bigger bogus thing than vaccines. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, I, I, as I say, the, the, when you go into the, the history of the vaccines, apart from all the theories, and it isn't the fact that doctors uh, are conning the public, the doctors believe their training, they believe what they're told. Yep. And the nurses do, and all the staff that give inoculations do. They believe all this stuff, even though they don't get the data to show the other side right. of the story. Right. And the data is available through the Lancet in the British Medical Journal, their histories of inoculations going back to the 1800s, mm-hmm. where sometimes thousands, 10,000 people would be, would be um, injected and, and then followed up to see how it took. For, for things like smallpox, only you find out every single one of them came down with smallpox, and they're the only ones mm-hmm. who did. Well, when I listen to these 
these, I mean, truly three-second uh, news bites uh-huh. <coughs> on the uh, the local um, uh, channels. Yeah. Um, they'll throw in something. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, they just never stop. I mean, they'll throw something in like, well, uh, such and such child uh, died of having the flu, uh, and the person didn't have a flu shot. It's like, how do you know that? Uh-huh. And how do you know the person wouldn't have died if they even had a flu shot? Yeah, see, that's not the intent. When you use logic and you come up against a brick wall, you know there's a different intention. Uh, and you'll always find this. Yeah, I never debate the, the logic. I, always, I understand as soon as the arguments come up. Uh, the, the intent is to train the public um, bit by bit that they, you, you, the individual, could be a threat to others if you don't have the inoculation. Mm-hmm. Over, oh, that's right. And they're actually using that that little bit uh-huh. in ads in Canada for the flu shot. <clears throat> you you could be responsible for the deaths of people. Oh yeah, and of course this is a very gnarly situation in the United States because vaccinations are tied in mm-hmm. to um, the public pool system. Well, it's also, it's also going to come under public safety. Oh yeah. Well, law, when know? I uh, when I enrolled for a graduate class last year. Uh-huh. Um, at, a, at, a, at University of South Florida, where I got a second bachelor's, I saw this thing about how all students, and this is an online class. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to have any contact with anyone. Uh, you have to get a vaccination. And I'm like, you know, anyway. But they exempted those who were born before a certain date, and that's interesting as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, I would have been um, exempt. But I, I just looked at that, especially for an online course, and I'm going, how stupid can you get? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, it never ends. But anyway... Um, well, now even in universities like New York, and, uh-huh. yeah. uh, they, they, they claim that you must have all of your injections, your inoculations, before you can right. be taken on as a student. So they're using it as blackmail as well. Yep. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it's good old uh, Rockefeller that was behind that. Well, I went back to the old League of Nations. Uh-huh. Now, when they, they, set up, they had a World Health Organization set up, because the League of Nations was just the, the prototype of the United Nations. Right. And the same staff simply became the United Nations, in fact. But uh, the Eugenic Society, again, as you say, headed by Rockefeller for America, um, they mandated through the World Health Organization that everyone, every disease would be eradicated by mandatory inoculations worldwide. That was their goal. Well, they're simply watching it being... And it's a eugenics program. Sure. We must remember who, who, gave, who put this forward. It was the American Eugenics Society mm-hmm. that claimed openly they wanted to kill off all inferior types uh-huh. of humanity. Uh-huh. Well, uh, let, me, let me just recite this for everybody. Uh, again, I, just, I pulled some stuff down, and, and you're hitting everywhere that I've, um, I, I guess I anticipated you might. And this is from, uh, this is from good old H.G. Wells back in 1907. He said, I believe that now and always the conscious selection of of the best for reproduction will be impossible. That to propose it is to display a fundamental misunderstanding of what individuality implies. The way of nature, and here we go, has always been to slay the hindmost. And there is still no other way unless we can prevent those who would become the hindmost being born. It is in the sterilization of failures and not in the selection of successes for breeding that the possibility of an improvement of the human stock lies. Kill, slay the hindmost. That's right. That's right. And the left wing think the H.G. Wells, because he belonged to the Fabian Society, Mm -hmm. uh, was all for the working people. (laughs) The Fabian Society was authorized to lead the left wing into this very system for the other wing, you see. Because there's only one head that owns both wings. 
And so, uh, yeah, the Fabian society was all part of the same system. Uh, they looked at all the poor and all the unwashed masses in the industrial era, and they, and they saw all the misery of the lower classes uh, living in this abnormal system, and the terrible deaths, and uh, apart from the wars and all the beggars with no legs on the street that came back from the wars, they were just dumped there. And, and they said, well, the best way really is to remove all these offending sites. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they meant was eradication of, of the excess and the poor. Mm. And that was the Fabian society that the left wing thinks is all speaking for them. And they're still, uh, they're still up and running, I oh, see. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they publish the reports every year. Yep. Um, and that's why we like Warwell, because they kicked them out. Orwell, Orwell, you see, was one of the worst uh, snobs you can imagine. He was born from a, a, a fallen middle class society. His mother raised him. She was a housemaid uh, for a, a, an aristocratic family. So he was brought up in that house as a servant's son. And the servants often were more snobbish uh, than their masters, as I said. Uh, and they see the workers passing their window on the way to the factory every morning, and they were terrified that one day they might have to join them. So uh, he said himself that he had access to the library there in that big house that his mother worked in. And, and his first book that he read, and the one he kept rereading, was Plato's Republic oh, yeah. for, for the perfect uh, utopia, the new Atlantis, the, the world system that would come in. Uh, that, was his, that was his favorite book, and he lived by it. But he was also um, a, a terribly paranoid, and he was on drugs as well. Uh, and most of those guys were at that time. Sounds like the 60s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you, you'll find that Blair, that was uh, George Orwell, right. during World War II, uh, he rented a place from, from H.G. Wells, uh, an apartment, for himself and his wife. And H.G. Uh, Wells, who was a little tubby guy, a little picnic-shaped fat guy, with a squeaky voice, uh, was on a diet, and he popped in one day to see, see Blair or Orwell, and uh, they were having their dinner, and uh, naturally the, the wife offered to give some to Wells, and, and he, he did not first said no, but then eventually he indulged and ate probably most of the food there. And then he kicked him out a week later, claiming that, that, that they tried to force him and maybe even poison him to eat the food. Yeah. Well, that's why that's why Orwell was paranoid. Most of the time he was right. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, he, he was a real basket case, and he had about three or four wives. And he signed special legal documents for each one, uh, to, to never to, to disclose his particular strange sexual deviancies that he indulged in. Yeah, well, that last one, uh, apparently, uh, he signed just about, uh, married just about on his deathbed. I guess she had something to do uh, editorially with him. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I forget when that was. Uh, when he was uh, last put into the hospital after uh, his stay in Jura. I guess that's, what is that, an island off the coast of Scotland? Oh, that was Blair. That was Orwell. Oh, yeah. You were talking about Wells? I was talking about Wells. Oh, okay. Forget that. Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, Wells was an absolute basket case. An absolute basket case. And that's why the British government picked him. He was so blackmailable. He was such a a natural snob who wanted to come from the lower classes to the higher classes. That's the worst kind you can find. And he hated the lower classes. Oh, that's that's clear. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Orwell... um, was a different kettle of fish. He, he uh, understood. He'd been picked at university uh, from a bureaucratic family, traditional bureaucrats, 
and he'd been trained to take part in this new world order until he found out that that, that uh, uh, there were no sides here that would all belong to the same head and that's when he spoke out and that's when everybody turned against him because uh, he disclosed what was coming yeah. H.G. Wells was just a little propagandist uh, for the British government well his um, his repugnance for uh for us, the useless feeders was very uh, palpable. He wrote two books. Um, his son finished the second one. Open and conspiracy. It was, uh, volume one and two for a history of the world. Mm-hmm. And in there, he goes through the whole eugenics program. As you've just, in fact, that piece that you read came from it. Um, he goes through the eugenics program, the races that would be saved because it would be of benefit to the system and the races that must uh, be eliminated because they would just be a drag to the system. Well, um, along those lines, of course, that spirit is, is far from uh, <clears throat> dead. Um, have you heard of a, um, a scientist, a PhD, uh, by the name of Pianka? Uh, doesn't ring a bell right now. All right. Um, this individual gave a speech last March. Okay, <clears throat> that's uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, his statement was, um, uh, Professor Pianca said, the earth as we know it will not survive without drastic measures. Then, and without presenting any data to justify this number, he asserted that the only feasible solution to saving the earth is to reduce the population to 10% of the present number. He said AIDS is not an efficient killer because it's too slow. His favorite candidate for eliminating 90% of the world's population is airborne Ebola because it is both highly lethal and it kills in days. Now, here's the sad thing about it. When Pianca finished his remarks, and this is before the Academy of Science, <coughs> the Texas Academy of Science, uh, he said, when Pianca finished his remarks, the audience applauded. It wasn't merely a smattering of polite clapping that audiences diplomatically reserved for public or boring speakers. It was a loud, vigorous, and enthusiastic impl- uh, applause. Now, what, how is somebody raised, and what are they thinking about to have that kind of attitude to their fellow human beings. Uh, it's amazing. Uh-huh. He's only one just reiterating oh, yeah. what they've all said that Charles Galton did the same with his book The Next Million Years. And uh, Huxley said the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Lord Bertrand Russell said the same thing and uh, the impact of science on society. Uh, All these front men who lead our opinions, in fact, they give most people their opinions. That's why they're big authors and they're pushed to talk. Uh, They're the ones who formulate our ideas so that when it starts to become introduced and we see the effects of what they're talking about, we think it's it's not only natural, it's necessary. That's We're being programmed. Mm -hmm. We're being programmed constantly. Well, one of the things I... uh, you know, sometimes I, I guess one's subconscious oftentimes can be a very effective as a, um, a canary in a cage. Uh, when you're not paying attention, all of a sudden something hits, and you might not have even really realized it if you were watching or whatever, but when, like passing by the TV is like the greatest. Um, we uh, have talked several times about Edward Bernays, who's considered the first public relations um, uh, type, if you will, in the United States, wrote two books of renown, and that is... Uh, propaganda and crystallizing public opinion and in it he so lovingly refers to all of us as either the group or the herd well now if you listen to certain ads and I can't remember which one it is but uh, just keep your ears open because it says don't follow the herd I think it says Mm -hmm. so now that's crept in is that by coincidence (laughs) 
You know, I doubt. Yeah, I know. Uh, this is the guy who, who who got women to start smoking, and that's uh, right. Mm-hmm. He was paid to do it and get them into the bars too, and, and different do different things. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's chronicled in the book uh, Father of Spin by Larry Ty T Y E. All right, moving along. Also, um, if we get a chance, I'd like to talk to to you about radical environmentalism at the end of the show, if we could, uh, and its usage uh, to bring about um, a feudalism, a new feudalism, but. Here's what I wanted to ask you, um, as, it's, as it's starting to occur now, and I'm looking at the reason why the United States was even begun, even dating back, obviously, to the 17th century, and perhaps even the late 16th, um, <clears throat> with the idea, as you said, of the New Atlantis, uh, that Bacon was a big proponent of that, and also a Rosicrucian. Yeah. From the very beginning with the colonies, even into the Masonic extension of the 13 states and such, yeah. uh, and what's happening now, could it possibly be that the United States has been raised, given a decent lifestyle, for the most part across the board, and fatted, and now prepared, perhaps, for its, its purpose, and that is to be, you know, the sword of um, the NWO, uh, perhaps a Fourth Reich. Uh, do you think, as much as we'd like to believe that God shed his grace on, on us, I don't think so, I think he does it, all, you know, as you would say, of all to people, not necessarily nations, but... Uh, could we have been, we in the United States, through generations, been brought along for uh, purposes uh, yeah. other than we know on the surface? What do you think about that? Absolutely no doubt. No, no doubt. Not, not just guessing or, or, or coming to a conclusion through speculation or even little trivial data, but just reading the founding fathers' main, main books that they wrote themselves, you know, their letters and so on. Uh, and you'll find that, that, that some of the big ones and, and Jefferson and Franklin were they left their letters you get the Franklin Institute is still in the family there and they published their letters and with Jefferson too um, who, who was not only a member of Freemasonry uh, as Franklin was I mean Franklin when he went to France remember was the grand master of the whole you know mm-hmm. French Orient Lodge he was a top guy and uh, and he said in his letters, he says that uh, the foundation of the United States will be the groundwork for, for, for uh, the amalgamation of the world into a federated world mm-hmm. under a single government run by 12 wise men. And the Kabbalah 12 is a perfect number of government. That's why... Uh, the European Union says, well, regardless of how many members come into the Union, they'll only keep 12 stars on their flag. Mm -hmm. Uh Well, uh, taking a look also at what part uh, wars played in a situation. Now, when we speak about Britain itself, I mean, obviously we're not talking about the people, we're talking about even the government, but whatever, whatever or whoever rules. You know, we look at the revolution, and we've had the informal on, too, to talk about um, just such matters. And that really, uh, treaties aside or whatever, we in the United States have inextricably been joined at the hip with Great Britain. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. At what point did the monarchs decide perhaps it was best that they just stepped into the background? Or did they actually get told to get out of town when Rothschild uh, gained prominence in Britain in the 18th century? It really happened uh, around the time of Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell. Okay. Cromwell was financed, his whole army of roundheads, the the armor, their weaponry, everything was financed by bankers in Holland at the time. And that was the 
really the beginning of where the, where the kings... Now remember, too, the kings were eventually, after they killed off the ones who existed in England, they imported them from Germany and Prussia. The present group who came in, um, their real name is Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Okay. Uh, the, the, in the World War One, they changed their name to Windsor, which was a place that they were living in, so they, they thought they'd adopt the name, because it was kind of odd to have uh, the public uh, going off to fight for your king and country with a German name against the Germans. So they changed the name to Windsor, but it's still officially Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. And these were places in Germany and Prussia. These were areas that that family owned. They were big estates and castles. So... These, these stepped into the background then and have been managed ever since as part of this whole system. Well, is there uh, something to uh, truth along the lines that there was a usurpation of the throne by the Windsors from perhaps, uh, would that be the Spencers? Well, this is the way I can see it. Um, Cromwell, well, after the English Revolution and they killed off Charles, um, and they did have the data on Charles' execution where they were told by this little funding group in Holland uh, let him escape, catch him because you need an excuse to, get to execute him and that's what they did they allowed him to escape and then they caught him and executed him and after that you, you, they really, um, and then after the next one they brought in the German groups now the German groups had been specially reared for this, this, this very high esoteric religion that runs the world the present group will be eventually the, the royalty of the whole planet that's why they've been left alone um, and just they, well, belong, they belong to this society that runs the world well uh, two things I'll ask you the short one first uh, is there some truth to the fact <clears throat> that Di um, being married to Charles and now having an, um, um, an heir there's always that claim that there was a usurpation, and if that's true, was she in a bloodline that allowed uh, actually Charles to have an heir that was now kind of like a unification of both? Is that anywhere near correct? Yeah, it's interesting, before I, I go into that, it's interesting that the media, when they changed her name from Princess Diana to Di, I knew that was the message she was going to die. And I kid you not, that's what it was. Lady Di. Well, uh, yeah. And, uh, and she was uh, related to the Stuart right. family. Uh, that was the, 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 the stewards of Britain, the royal stewards. And aren't they the ones that are claiming that the, uh, the throne was wrested from them? Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> also, uh, we can go into like Merovingian bloodlines and all that stuff, but the thing is, do the royals, one, have a special, really, a unique blood type, and two, uh, do they all love to, um, or maybe they, they are, some, well, connected to the Merovingian line? Do they hold that as something, or is that just basic urban legend? I think a lot of the urban legend is put out by uh, the publicity groups around the royal family. In fact, that's a fact, because they've even done specials on the royal family, um, and then eventually, a few years later, the same company will expose the fact that they made a lot of nonsense up about them. They're constantly feeding us this stuff to keep us mystified and consumed. I, personally, I don't really... Mm -hmm. Uh, think that's that's really the the point of any any particular DNA or whatever. I think it's the fact that they, they do belong to to inbred uh, uh, groups going back for maybe maybe thousands of years, definitely hundreds. They came out around the Middle Ages uh, more openly under Rosicrucianism, 
which transformed into different branches, each one keeping its own speciality and forming Freemasonry as well for the system. The committee was kept under their thumb. It's their system. Freemasonry is, is uh, really their system of, of keeping control. Uh, so, so really, yeah. I mean, see, there's a huge. This is a whole thing to do with the Cathars and the Albigensians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last crusade the Catholic Church had was against the Albigensians and the Cathars. Mm-hmm. And these people were the ones who had a parallel system to the Church. The only difference being they claimed that the, the, the Lord of the, the world was in charge of the world. And uh, they, they did have two main orders. For the, one for the ordinary people, they call religions for the masses, they had the mass. And for the elite, they had there's an order called the Perfecti. The Perfecti, like all esoteric religions, and all religions have this part in them, by the way. <laughs> uh, the Perfecti, because you were perfected, you didn't have to follow the rules that were made for the ordinary people. You'd become a god. So they did not uh, pertain to you anymore. Uh, it's interesting that not long after that out came the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry which is called the Rite of Perfection which is the main one that runs the US today and I think a lot of these the remnants of the Cathars and Albigensians came in with the Puritans into the US I've no doubt about that mm-hmm. at all uh-huh. and these, the, the leading families still run it today uh Two um, events that took place. Uh, well, well, let me go back. I think I, I still wanted to ask you one other question. Uh, but it, it, is it true to, uh, that at one point uh, the Rothschilds, with of course their statements about I care not, you know, if I can trap a, mon- a, a country's money, I care not who makes its laws. Uh, was there a time when the Rothschilds in the city of London uh, became preeminent? Yeah. I, I personally, again, I think they were brought in to, to, to take charge of the royalties affairs, remembering the same the same royalty had been imported from 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 Germany as well. Well, wasn't it, wasn't it William Hanover's money that Rothschilds uh, that Rothschilds actually used to bust the move to put him into the situation where they could buy the Bank of England? That's that's what the claim is. Now, that was the authorized version by okay. the Rothschilds' grandmother. She was the official spokesperson for the family for the for the authorized book. Uh, they tried to claim that it's worked their way up from from Reich's, literally Reich's right. Yeah. right. And, and they used his money as an investment, and it was the interest of that investment uh, supposedly that gave them their start. The man still got his money back, supposedly according to the grandmother. But, but that was nonsense. They were never uh, Reich and Born merchants. Um, they were trained in the best, high, the highest banks in Frankfurt, Germany. They've been reared and, and trained to do exactly what they were to do. Right, and who would I think they came in to look after this royalty that had also been imported from Germany and Prussia. Well, then who would have orchestrated such things to bring them along? It, again, uh, it was an esoteric society. Okay. And I have no doubt at all it, it, it's related. Judging from, from how I know this esoteric religion works and what I've studied on it, I have no doubt it's related to the Cathars and Albigensians. Hmm. So do you see those um, two peoples as being uh, somewhat hmm, Saturnine? Uh, you, you might say that. They, they use all the religions. That's, that's the beauty of this, in a sense. They use all the religions' symbologies 
and, and the found places in France, even, you probably remember four or five years ago, under Paris, uh, they'd, they'd gone through, down through the labyrinths underneath the, the city, and it was on television, they found uh, huge rooms there with uh, the symbology, you had the Star of David, you had the swastika, you had, you had all the Freemasonic sim- symbols, the Hindu symbols, all over the ceilings and walls not chalked or scribbled but professionally put there and lots of chairs there and so on uh, you're talking about a, a religion that uses all of the world's religions and symbologies mm-hmm. well isn't it interesting though that um, the Vatican saw fit to uh, to whack both um, um, the Cathars and the uh, Albigensians <coughs> it is and it isn't um, when, when you rule a world even a world religion Remembering, you, you always, in any major religion, have an esoteric side to it. You have a, can have many, many employees working beneath you, uh, compartmentalized, who don't even under, know there's another side to it themselves. All done through the ages. And it's interesting, for instance, a lot of the Albigensians when in, were, were taken into monasteries for refuge, mm-hmm. and they became the monks of special orders. Um, that... Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, so one one part of the church is, is, is doing what they're they're true believers in their religion. That's all they know about, and, and they go after the Albigensians. Another part is on the esoteric side of this religion uh, that takes care of the other side. Within, on every side of every faction, there are two sides. There are two sides on every side. The ones who know and the ones who don't. And does that necessarily begat a synthesis? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Even in the Civil War, it's incredible uh, to read the Masonic stories mm-hmm. of uh, officers and men who were caught by an enemy, and uh, when the bayonet was ready to get put into them, they get the Masonic uh, sign for help, and, and they were taken in and, and put into these officers' own homes. Yeah. And nursed back to health. No, in the handshake. Authorized books are put out. Well, uh, when we say no in the handshake, obviously, because we see it flash so many times, especially with Bush. But I mean, it, <clears throat> that runs much deeper than um, the national ties, and, and that was the same situation in the Revolutionary War as well, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. The, there were times when uh, uh, companies of, of men, British, most of them actually weren't even British; they were Hanoverian from Germany. Right. Yeah. So. Um, because this present house, besides Cobra Gotha, is, is also part of the Hanoverian bunch. So they brought all these troops in, and as they were walking through the forest, uh, they would spot the other oncoming ones of the enemy, and they'd, they'd literally get their signs and gestures at the front, and, and they'd look the other way and pass each other. Yeah. That's recorded in history books. All right. Um, I'll tell you what. we got a question for you, and then I'm going to go ahead and... Um probably pose a question and I'll take up the, the, the second half of the show. And again, we're with Alan Watt. The website is cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And are, 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 is today a day that you're going to give us a blurb? I, I hope so. If, uh, if I don't get shut down again, you never know. You call me taking a cup of a sip of coffee, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I might have to get somebody else just in case I, I don't get out to put the blurb out for me just for... Just to let people know. All right, well, give me a holler if you need any help. Yeah, a little. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I, we'll talk about this if we could uh, after the show. Um, uh-huh. yeah. But, um, yeah, let me uh, pose this question. 
Uh, it says, what advice can you give to those of us who are average working class people who don't own land and have average jobs and no savings as to how to proceed throughout life, given that we are in an artificially created and planned social structure? So, uh, to be honest with you, here's the thing. You can offer advice till you're blue in the face. And knowing that people, most people are not risk takers, you could offer them the chance of a lifetime sometimes, and they'll go off in a different direction, never knowing uh, they might not get that chance again. They're not risk takers, and because they're not risk takers, they'll stay put where they are, most of them. Uh, there are people who, regardless of their situa- situation, and, and again, it all depends on the spouse, because the, the, the system depends on, on, the, on the mother, she's a mother, uh, wanting her little nest there and wanting the income to take care of the children, that's natural. That's, just, that's been abused and used too by the elite forever. Oh, sure. uh, the Romans were favorites for that. Um, so, yeah, in a sense, if, you're, if your wife is strong enough to go along with it, and if you're a risk taker, then you, you have to make the decisions and somehow get out. Yeah, you, you probably drop your, what you're used to, for your, what you call your standard of living. But hey, how long are you going to get it at it anyway? You're not going to have it much longer. Well, um, let me personalize this a bit. Uh, if, in fact, perhaps my wife and myself are, are much the same as this couple. Uh-huh. I mean, one of the things we always resisted was just being, as, as Bernays would say, uh, being uh, manipulated as part of the herd. I mean, we didn't we didn't hang around with people who wanted to hang around with us because of the kind of car we had. That wasn't going to happen. Yeah. In other words, we never got roped into the materialism. I think that's a number one element. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that might be too uh, facile uh, for your satisfaction, but I think pretty much if you understand what happens and you don't get manipulated, I mean, you can only... Let's put it this way. I mean, if you're on the Titanic, uh, what do you do? You go up to the smokestack and be the last one? I mean, what, what do you think, Alan? I mean, is, in, in a way, you really can't, you, you can't avoid it. So the best thing you can do is live, I, I guess, in a sense, in the system but outside it and not be driven. Yeah. I mean, and, and as, as you well know, too, if you, if you look for the church, uh, truth, like um, Robinson Jeffers said in his poem, Be Angry at the Sun, it hunts in no pack. Yeah. And so, you know, it's also a life sometimes of... Um, not isolation, but um, ostracization. So, uh, yeah. what do you th- uh, would you speak to that? Well, well, it's true. Um, most people have been so pampered, especially over the last 20, 25 years or so, uh, where they don't even have to get up and turn their TV station. Yes, yeah, so we can be hypnotized by another station. Uh, everything is at the flick of a switch, instantaneous, and because of that, they're, they're giving up their ability for decision making in many, many ways. That's, that same technique is used on them. They're in a city situation. They want to believe that they're trained to believe there's a thousand agencies out there to help them should they ever get into trouble or become destitute or whatever. It's all fear-based that keeps them actually there. It's fear-based uh, techniques. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if they want to live in fear and, and have their, their, you know, uh, their guaranteed power, it's not guaranteed anymore either, uh, and all the toys are used to, mm-hmm. stay where you are. If you want to take the risk and do with less and be mm-hmm. uh, use ingenuity once in a while or do without once in a while, uh, then take off and go somewhere else 
with a different standard of living and um, and you'll be much freer you're freer within your own mind that's all you have is your mind mm-hmm. all the toys in the world aren't going to compensate and save you in fact that's what's tying you down to the road that you're on to destruction you'll hang on to them mm-hmm. uh, right down to when they come down your, around your door to give you your, your final inoculation uh, finally one of the things that we held on to uh, and to this day is never to get inured or accustomed or addicted to anything or whatever uh-huh. that could, that if it were um, if it was threatened to be taken away from you it could bring you down to your knees yes just be able to let it all go you have to okay you have to I mean I've talked to people uh, if you visit people too in hospitals and so on that were dying you never hear them talking about what they're going to miss with my TV or my car <laughs> right. or, or my favorite uh, toolkit or whatever it happens to be. Or why didn't I spend more hours at the office? Yeah, or, or did I clean the house properly? You know? <laughs> uh, none of that stuff. It, it, it just isn't there. It, it, it's right. who is, what they'll talk about are those people, the few people who said something during their life that made an impact on them. Uh-huh. That's what they talk about. Meaning, meaning, you see. Yeah. Uh, well, well said, and I hope that answers uh, the couples, or at least gives them something to think about. Um, I, I guess, well, what I want to do is, uh, I, we have some more questions, but I think they're germane to what we're going to talk about right now, and I just want to uh, focus on something. Uh, a, a Canadian listener um, had posed something uh, in a show you were on last. I didn't get to it about the Industrial Revolution, but I started thinking about what an interesting time, but not very well um, publicized, is what took place... I guess you could say, uh, in Europe and the United States in the mid-19th century. Uh Uh, But I look at it as being key for several reasons. One, we have the second industrial revolution and the importance that might have, and and I want to specify that. Also, you had the Civil War, which was a kneecapping of the United States and I I think a final harnessing of of we the people. Uh, And thirdly, we also have uh, the uh, writing of the Communist Manifesto, and then later on, uh, in the uh, what late 1860s, you had Das Kapital. Uh, I think somehow all of these are related. Mm-hmm. And so let me start with the Industrial Revolution. We don't think about it much, but could that have been an element that kicked off and created a divide for the laboratories that would become capitalism, socialism, or social democracy, and communism? Uh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt whatsoever. Uh... When you look upon, like a general would look upon a war, a war on the public continually, uh, you know that eventually if you don't put out a, a front man there to lead a counter-revolution, then amongst the people who are being oppressed, they will find their own. So you always put out your own ones first to say all the right things uh, more clearly and succinctly than anyone else is saying. And... and um, and the people will follow them. And so Marx and those boys were put out because it was all to do with, with money and capital right. and, uh, and materialism, the whole doctrine of materialism. And, uh, and sure enough, the public, who were all on edge, ready for a revolution, followed the Marxian code, never realizing it would lead them to the same point eventually of high industrialization, that that's what the Soviet system did. You had many countries, small countries, different countries, different languages and customs, all pushed into one big uh, union. Uh, very much like the United States, when you think about uh-huh. it, and they all, all have the, the same letters in some ways. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the Soviet Union, the SU, the United States is the US, 
It's a mirror image, you see. And um, uh, and one had the red star, one had the white star. Right. You see, it's a, sure. it's a mirror image of the same system working apparently in opposition, but not not at all. It's working together to to to, to standardise many peoples under one into a high industrial age. Yeah. Alex, might we have seen then, uh, in recent times, a very uh, key uh, moment when, in this melding, this eventual melding of all economic systems, uh-huh. you see uh, the Soviet Union supposedly uh, disaggregating, <clears throat> you see Eastern Europe being opened up again, and then over here in the United States you see a greater shall we say, socialization or Sovietization. You know, we Republicans keep talking about, for instance, um, reducing government, and it does nothing but expand. Uh, actually, we're on par with, with the ex-Soviet Union. We're exactly on the same system as, as they emerged into, which was meant to happen, and Lenin talked about it. He said the dictatorship, uh, he said off the proletariat, which he really said is over the proletariat, dictatorship won't last for more than 70 or 80 years then we go into the next phase which will be neither completely communist and neither completely capitalist it was talking about the merging of the two systems into one and he was only one of many authors who wrote about that at at the beginning of the 1900s so they're exactly on track what emerged out of the Soviet Union is a socialistic almost a a Soviet tile bureaucracy massive stratas of bureaucracies running the whole of Europe on par with what's happening and coming into place here now. I mean, so we all know we're going to go to the same grey existence. It's it's the design. Sure. In fact, Gorbachev, you know, in his last speech, when he was the president, remember, of the Soviet Union, before they brought him over to the U.S., before he walked across the world giving lectures about the New World Order on Margaret Thatcher's arm, you know, she introduced them all over the planet. Um, as the new Soviet uh, he talked about this and his last speech to the Soviet Union before he came over was he says shortly this, to the, this is to the, the Politburo he said um, you'll hear shortly that communism is dead he says don't believe it no. we're simply going into the next transformationary stage to, to push worldwide into, this, into this, the global system well th- there have been a number of defectors uh, two I can think of one is Golitsyn yeah. With, I, I mean, if you can take what they're saying is true, it's, it's perfect. It's like, tell the West that uh, communism died, and they'll all go back to sleep. And in fact, if you even talk about communism, uh-huh. as I found, you get looked at like it's some kind of like out of like vogue oh, word. Yeah, you're talking about the Roman army, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's like, no, don't think, because that's where we're going to. We are. We are under the communist, the Sovietized system. This is what they had. They had the guys uh, coming in with the machine guns, bashing your door in at three in the morning and this kind of stuff and dragging people off no trial nothing under their own form of homeland security uh, that was where the whole system was perfected was the Soviet Union we are the new world Soviet mm-hmm. it's here mm-hmm. it's just they won't use the same terms no but, but you know it's but, but isn't it I mean it's beautiful because as, as I've been talking about that book towards Soviet America uh-huh. by William Z. Forster back in 32 he laughed he goes okay folks you know you call it federalization but you know what it is? It's Sovietization, and you don't get it because you called it federal. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know. And remember, too, uh, with the American Civil War, apart from all the emotional topics and the other topics, which were all very real, 
It was a takeover of an, a northern industrial system run on banking and debt and credit mm-hmm. of, of a, a non-industrial southern region, and which was definitely run on slavery by the majority. You know, the, the, that's how it was run. Not all the people's own slaves, but the big plantations certainly did. But the fact is, it was one industrialized system taken over another. It was a remember companies take over, and this is what they say: indict, do it through diplomacy and take over. War is an extension of business and politics, uh-huh. and they took it over. And then Karl Marx, remember, telegraphed Lincoln, and and uh, the letter is in. You have the letter in. Uh, in the U.S. congressional records from Karl Marx to Lincoln congratulating him on keeping and expanding the centralized government, which is a fundamental tenet of, of communism, of Marxism. Right. Well, yeah. well that, two things. One, obviously, uh, as we said, uh, there, was a, there was a mentality, I guess, in the United States to try to keep the states obviously very powerful and keep a, a mere, uh, you know, a cursory structure or whatever, uh, for some kind of uh, unification. Uh, and maybe you needed that for the public defense and such if you were going to invade it. I mean, I don't know. But clearly there was an idea that we don't want to be one big happy family, and, of course, that did occur. So there, as we said before, there's a trial run of fed- uh, federation. And two, I don't really believe um, that in the end uh, the Vatican nor Britain w- or the monarchs in general, uh, who, who obviously were represented by the Secret Treaty of Verona in 1822, wanted to see the United States necessarily decimated. They wanted them to go through a certain centralization and expansion of government to make them obviously more monar- uh, monarchical. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. As I say, uh, when they sent Rudyard Kipling over to give his right to read his poem on the white man's burden, having to take over the world for all the poor souls that could run it themselves. And he said, we pass the torch on to you. And he read that to the U.S. Senate, because he was a high mason. That's the only reason you can read things as a foreigner in the U.S. Senate. And and that was the official handing over. We pass the torch on to you. They'd had many meetings in the Royal Institute of International Affairs in England on on the fact that Britain, through all the the wars that they'd gone through on behalf of of London, were were almost destitute with massive Uh debts. The U.S. would have to take over. It had the manpower. It had the resources, natural and otherwise, to, to lead the world. So it was decided long, long ago the U.S. would take the lead. Uh, interesting, too, because uh, the time is coming, I believe, for this Fourth Reich to be dashed upon the chessboard out in Asia. But um, also, um, when you talk about passing the torch, can't let that get by, because obviously we have that... Um, French Masonic lady out in New York Harbor called Columbia, who's ISIS, with her torch. And um, I also find it interesting, by the way, and uh, certain people who are not particularly happy as I am not with the 9-11 scholars, their uh, logo happens to be, guess what? Uh, the torch. <laughs> oh, what a surprise. <laughs> All right, we have a, a comment for you, then another question. Um, and, I mean, we could... Like I said, the, the mid-19th century is a very, very interesting time, I think, as it impacts the way we live uh, even today. Yes. All right, it says uh, we have, uh, the more I reflect on it, the more I realize that the elite ruling in this world represents nothing but a solid gold trailer park. Uh-huh. The, the elites absolutely did come over in the Mayflower and subsequent boats. William Bruce's wife had a lineage going back through the old royal lines, back through Eleanor of Aquitaine, William the Conqueror, and Charlemagne. I know, yes. because I'm married to one of her descendants. <laughs> All right, we got a question for you, too. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, 
okay, has, he ever, has Alan ever made any re- uh, mistakes in his research that have led to him realizing something important once uh, he corrected him? Also, what are some of the most important informative realizations about this global agenda that uh, you have com- uh, come uh, across uh, through the decades, uh, whether it's from uh, making mistakes or not? Uh, finally, uh, can you identify anybody in history who was working for the agenda but decided at some point that they wanted to try and stop it? What effect did they have? And what can that teach people who want to try and stop the agenda? All right, the first half of this is whether by trial and error or whatever. Uh, have you ever come to some big ahas that uh, change your way of, uh, of thinking uh, what you had before? Yeah. Uh, well, you, you, you always do, especially personally, about your own life and what you, how you see the world. The more you learn, the, the more changes come upon you. And that's called growing, you know. Uh, so that happens absolutely now sometimes you will come across information put out that you have to really wade through and, and you'll have one opinion until you find more information on the same topic uh, it's interesting with Akhenaten of, of Egypt how they always portrayed him as being this sort of family man etc who didn't want war and I used to think well this guy was probably a good enough fellow until you realize that uh, when they dug up uh, all the thousands of tablets, reports sent by envoys from their satrapies across the, the ancient world, uh, there was a war coming towards them, and it was taken over, and he totally ignored it right to the very end. It made no sense until he realized he was part of this new mm-hmm. incoming bunch. You see, these people rule over a country, and they don't relate to that country. They're simply rulers. If they move to another place, they will be the rulers of that country or empires. And each, each time they move, they get a bigger and bigger empire. This is an ancient system going back for thousands of years. So, yeah, I changed my mind on that one um, a long time ago. Um, well... Uh, so what's the last one? I All right, and the second one, and I would throw this out. He said, uh, "Was there anybody working for you know the code agenda?" Uh, but oh decided yeah, Blair, some Blair was one, or George Orwell, okay. Okay. who definitely uh, spilled the beans. Mm-hmm. He fervently believed he'd been trained that the, what he was working for would would help uh, the working poor and and the standards of living and and a whole new society. He was picked at Cambridge University and trained, as most of them are, for the CIA or MI6 or whatever. He fought in the Spanish Civil War on, on, on the side of the left when he became a hero. And when he got to know the communists coming in from, from, from the other countries, he realized there was a completely different agenda that was going to come out of this, a different destination. And he came back to Britain, and the, the socialist clubs that used to welcome him as a hero and author turned their back on him because he said, look, you're all being led up the garden path to the same destination as the other side. I, I look at many of the assassinations, uh, and there's, a, there's a, more than people really realize, because they're attributed to some other means, of, uh, of presidents who uh, get whacked. And yeah. I would think also, when they change their minds or go rogue, or have a change of heart, even up to Kennedy, that's probably not a good idea. Uh, Some of them, like McKinley, I think, really didn't even know what was going on. (laughs) They were out of the loop. Uh, They were making decisions thinking they were the president, and the lone gunman picks him out and comes to him and kills him. I mean, this is standard. You don't have to have a guy at the top who even knows the agenda. You could even put a pope in there that wouldn't have a clue, and they have in the past. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well... Uh, you know, there, there might be something to uh, McKinley's uh, regarding uh, financial uh, situations, which always seem to be one of the things that can get you killed. Yep. I mean, obviously with Garfield as well, and even going back to William Henry Harrison, who may have been a very brutal 
military uh, command with regard to the way uh, he dealt with uh, uh, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. But it's funny that he uh, did not recognize the divi- divine right of monarchs to rule, and 30 days later, uh, he sleeps with the fishes. Yes. You know, and we go on and on. In fact, one of the things, too, without getting pedantic, is that, uh, and it's, it's well publicized in the papers of the day, you have James Buchanan getting poisoned at his inaugural party. Yeah, uh, for running afoul, as some would believe, and I do, uh, of the Vatican. Mm-hmm. And here uh, he he lives on, yeah. uh, but obviously some members of his party died. And th- I mean, how in the world did we not even find out about this in our history books? I, I know, you know. And of course, the thing with Buchanan is he may have been reluctant to want to commence the civil war earlier. And it's like, well, if you're not going to do that, you know. We have to uh, we have to do an attitude adjustment here. And I guess Buchanan, though he did survive, yeah. obviously uh, was was pretty much. Uh, just uh, a bare, uh, you know, semblance of himself. Yes. Uh, so with this bit about people changing their mind on agenda, yes. Now, the one thing I would ask you, oh, we, we're out of time. Hmm. I only want to start that one. Uh, whether or not the whole thing is scripted or whether there are little rogue things that occur and change the course of history. But that's... I would always tell people that the biggest heroes that you have generally work for the other side. Uh, they're trained from an early age to be your leaders. Uh, that's always been the uh, standard, in fact. And they'll say all the right things. Mm-hmm. They'll appear, in fact, to be on top of all information, always. They always have to appear to be on top so that the bulk of the population will follow them. And they're, they're well-funded and well-connected. Sounds like uh, some of the personages we have in our Patriot networks down here. Uh, well, <laughs> Patriot means it's a riot, Pa. <laughs> yeah, that's what it means. Uh, the Patriot team is the oldest team in history that's been by the leaders. We've been with Alan Watt. The uh, website is cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Alan, I'll bid a duty, but I'll call you back up and see if I can give you any assistance, okay? Sure enough. Thank you very much for being on with us. That's a pleasure. Bye-bye.